Part three, chapter twenty of Bonaventure, a prose pastoral of Acadian Louisiana. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Bonaventure, a prose pastoral of Acadian Louisiana by George W. Cable. Part three, chapter twenty Love, Anger, and Misunderstanding. The city bells had sounded for noon when the sleeper opened her eyes. While she slept, Claude had arrived again at his father's cottage from the scene of the crevasse, and reported to Tarbox the decision of himself and the engineer that the gap would not be closed for months to come. While he told it, they sat down with St-Pierre to breakfast. Claude, who had had no chance even to seek sleep, ate like a starved horse. Tarbox watched him closely with hidden and growing amusement. Presently their eyes fastened on each other steadily. Tarbox broke the silence. "'You don't care how the crevasse turns out. I've asked you a question now twice, and you don't even hear.' "'Why don't you ask again?' responded the younger man, reaching over to the meat-dish and rubbing his bread in the last of the gravy. Some small care called Saint-Pierre away from the board. Tarbox leaned forward on his elbows, and not knowing he quoted, said softly, "'There's something up. What is it?' "'Up?' asked Claude in his full voice, frowning. "'Up where? What? What is?' "'Ah, yes,' said Tarbox, with affected sadness. "'Yes, that's it. I thought so. Oh, han for somebody. Oh, hey for somebody.' Claude stopped with a morsel halfway to his mouth, glared at him several seconds, and then resumed his eating, not like a horse now, but like a bad dog gnawing an old bone. He glanced again angrily at the embodiment of irreverence opposite. Mr. Tarbox smiled. Claude let slip, not intending it, an audible growl with his eyes in the plate. Mr. Tarbox's smile increased to a noiseless laugh, and grew and grew until it took hopeless possession of him. His nerves relaxed. He trembled. The table trembled with him. His eyes filled with tears. His brows lifted laboriously. He covered his lips with one hand, and his abdomen shrank until it pained him. And Claude knew and showed he knew it all. That was what made it impossible to stop. At length, with tottering knees, Mr. Tarbox rose and started silently for the door. He knew Claude's eyes were following. He heard him rise to his feet. He felt as though he would have given a thousand dollars if his legs would but last him through the doorway. But to crown all, St-Pierre met him just on the threshold, breaking, with unintelligent sympathy, into a broad, simple smile. Tarbox laid one hand upon the door for support, and at that moment there was a hurtling sound. Something whizzed by Tarbox's ear, and the meat-dish crashed against the doorpost and flew into a hundred pieces. The book-agent ran like a deer for a hundred yards and fell groveling upon the turf, the laugh still griping him with the energy of a panther's jaws, while Claude, who in blind pursuit had come threshing into his father's arms, pulled his hat over his eyes and strode away towards the skiff ferry. 
As Mr. Tarbox returned towards the cottage, St. Pierre met him looking very grave, if not displeased. The swamper spoke first. "'Das mighty good for you I was yonder to stop dat boy. He would a half kill you.' "'He'd have served me exactly right,' said the other, and laughed again. St. Pierre shook his head as though this confession were poor satisfaction, and said, "'Das not safe, make occasion mad.' He don't get mad easy, but when he get mad, it break out all over him, yas. He goin feel bad all day now. I see tear in his eye when he walk off. I'm sorry, said Tarbox sincerely, and presently added, Now while you look up a picked gang of timbermen, I'll see if I can charter a little stern-wheel steamer, get that written permission from Madame Beausoleil to cut trees on her land, and so forth and so forth. "'You'll hardly see me before bedtime again.' "'It was the first hour of the afternoon "'when Claude left his little workroom "'and walked slowly down to and across Canal Street "'and into Bourbon. "'He had spent the intervening hours "'seated at his work-table with his face in his hands. "'He was in great bitterness. "'His late transport of anger gave him no burdensome concern.' Indeed, there was consolation in the thought that he should, by and by, stand erect before one who was so largely to blame, and make that full confession and apology, which he believed his old-time Grand Point schoolmaster would have offered, could Bonaventure ever have so shamefully forgotten himself. Yet the chagrin of having at once so violently and so impotently belittled himself added one sting more to his fate. He was in despair. An escaped balloon, a burst bubble, could hardly have seemed more utterly beyond his reach now than did Marguerite. And he could not blame her. She was right, he said sternly to himself, right to treat his portrait as something that reminded her of nothing, whether it did so or not. To play on with undisturbed inspiration, to lift never a glance to his window, and to go away without a word, a look, a sign to any one, when the least breath or motion would have brought him instantly into her sacred presence. She was right. She was not for him. There is a fitness of things, and there was no fitness, he said, of him for her. And yet she must and would ever be more to him than any one else, he would glory in going through life unloved, while his soul lived in and on the phantom companionship of that vision of delight which she was and should ever be. The midday bells sounded softly here and there. He would walk. As I say, he went slowly down the old Rue Bourbon. He had no hunger. He would pass by the women's exchange, there was nothing to stop there for. Was not Madame Beausoleil in Terrebonne, and Marguerite the guest of that chattering woman in silk and laces? But when he reached the exchange doors, he drifted in as silently and supinely as any drift-log would float into the new crevasse. The same cashier was still on duty. She lighted up joyously as he entered, and when he had hung his hat near the door, leaned forward to address him, but with a faint pain in his face and loathing in his heart, he passed on and out into the veranda. 
The place was well filled, and he had to look about to find a seat. The bare possibility that she might be there was overpowering. There was a total suspension of every sort of emotion. He felt, as he took his chair and essayed to glance casually around, as light and unreal as anyone who ever walked the tightrope in a dream. The blood leaped in torrents through his veins, and yet his movements, as he fumbled aimlessly with his knife, fork, and glass, were slow and languid. A slender young waitress came, rested her knuckles on the table, and leaned on them, let her opposite arm hang limply along the sideways curve of her form, and bending a smile of angelic affection upon the young Acadian, said in a confidential undertone, "'The cashier told me to tell you those ladies have come.' Claude rose quickly and stood looking down upon the face before him, speechless. It was to him exactly as if a man in uniform had laid a hand upon his shoulder and said, "'You're my prisoner.' Then, still gazing, and aware of others looking at him, he slowly sank again into his seat. "'She just told me to tell you,' said the damsel. "'Yes, sir. Have you ordered?' "'Humph!' He was still looking at her. "'I say, have you given your order?' "'Yes.' She paused awkwardly, for she knew he had not, and saw that he was trying vainly to make her words mean something in his mind. "'Shan't I get you some coffee and rolls, same as day before yesterday?' "'Yes.' He did not know what she said. His heart had stopped beating. Now it began again at a gallop. He turned red. He could see the handkerchief that was wadded into his outer breast-pocket jar in time with the heavy thump, thump, thump beneath it. The waitress stayed an awful time. At last she came.' I waited, she sweetly said, to get hot ones. He drew the refreshments towards him mechanically. The mere smell of food made him sick. It seemed impossible that he should eat it. She leaned over him lovingly and asked, as if referring to the attitude, Would you like anything more? Something sweet? His flesh crawled. He bent over his plate, shook his head, and stirred his coffee without having put anything into it. She tripped away, and he drew a breath of momentary relief, leaned back in his chair, and warily passed his eyes around to see if there was anybody who was not looking at him and waiting for him to begin to eat. Ages afterward to speak with Claude's feelings, he rose, took up his check, and went to the desk. The cashier leaned forward and said with soft blitheness, "'They're here. They're upstairs now.' Claude answered never a word. He paid his check. As he waited for change, he cast another glance over the various groups at the tables. All were strangers. Then he went out. On the single sidewalk step he halted, and red and blind with mortification, turned again into the place. He had left his hat. With one magnificent effort at dignity and unconcern, he went to the rack, took down the hat, and as he lowered it towards his head, cast a last look down the room, and there stood Marguerite. 
She had entered, just in time it seemed to him, but just too late, in fact, to see and understand the blunder. Oh, agony! They bowed to each other with majestic faintness, and then each from each was gone. The girl at the desk saw it and was dumb. End of Part 3, Chapter 20